Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Diego and DeVore show. And they pulled somebody up from the grave, Derek Flair. And here I am to tell you that you're in the right place whenever you see the Diego and DeVore show on your screen. You are in the right place, and it's going to be big woo tonight. Hi, wrestling fans. This is Gary Whitehurst, former ring announcer with NACW and other indie organizations in the Carolinas for many years. When it comes to all things wrestling, you're in the right place with the Diego and DeVore Wrestling Podcast. When it comes to travel and vacations, you come to me. Once we get through this pandemic, I can make your vacation dreams come true, whether it be an exciting cruise, an all-inclusive resort, international land vacation, and so much more, I'll take care of you. Why me? Well, I will be your one contact person. No long hold times with Booking Direct or big online agencies. And my rate will never be higher than Booking Direct. And I do not charge a booking agency planning fee. How do you reach me? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I'm based in Tampa, Florida, and I can be reached at area code 561-424-6003. That's 561-424-6003. My email is gwhitehurst at cruiseandtravelexperts.com. That's G-W-H-I-T-E-H-U-R-S-T at C-R-U-I-S-E. A-N-D-T-R-A-V-E-L-E-X-P-E-R-T-S dot com. My website is gtravel dot cruiseandtravelexperts dot com. Hey, I got something great for you now. If you make a reservation with me and mention the Diego and DeVore Wrestling Podcast, I'll give you a cruise onboard credit or amenity. You can't beat that. And now, let's get back to the Diego and DeVore Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Diego and DeVore Show, brought to you by Invicta Watches and Rogue Energy on Anchor.fm. Also streaming wherever you find your favorite wrestling podcast, whether it be iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, with your hosts, Diego De La Rosa and Lord Everett DeVore, as we talk all things wrestling, untold road stories, and bring you stories about guys and gals you might not have heard about, and what's to come. So step inside that squared circle with us as we take you on a fun-filled ride. All right, here we go with another episode of the Diego and Divorce Show. Diego, I know you're freezing, man, but how the hell are you, brother? Polar vortex, man. You laugh at me because I got the electric blanket on. <laughs> you're getting old but, on me, brother. I know. So, I mean, I know in D.C., what, it's not even as cold as up here in the mountains of the West by God, Virginia. But, uh, you know, I'm also a little tired. We had that, what was that three and a half hour podcast marathon we had the other night yeah. till one thirty in the morning? Yes, it was crazy. It was a good night, I, though. It, it, was, it was a good night um, with our good buddy. And so, good time was had by all. So, tonight, we have something what I consider special for the fans and for us as well. When I told you about the guests that we're having, you're like, yeah, book it. No, absolutely. I marked out the second you said who it was. I was like, you, number one, or don't rib me because this is cool. Yeah. 
No, no, I wouldn't do that to you. Not when it comes to show stuff. The rest of everything is open game. Wow, this is true. So, but before I start, I noticed did you get a haircut. Did I get a haircut? You know, I'm yeah. Leave me alone. No, it looks good. I got <laughs> today. I got the old the Jason Statham. It's pretty nice. I'll show you oh, later. Well, there you go. Yeah, that's about as best as I can do. So, let's talk about tonight's guest. So, let's talk about some background. I sent you some notes and. I mean, I have to, there's 30 plus years of history on those notes, so we have to condense it, and then we're, we're going to peel the onion back and just talk talk more about the history. Oh, absolutely, and, and it, it's an honor that uh, it's happening today. Um, I think it's totally cool. Uh, we're talking today to none other than Mary Freeze. She is the daughter of Pampero Furpo. Now, for you people out there that don't know, uh, he was professionally known as the Wild Bill of the Pampas, the missing link. I mean, the first time I saw him, he was the missing link. And, you know, I, I was young and I marked out and I was like, wow, this dude is out of his mind. He missed his happy medicine. What is up with that? Yeah. And he was just intimidating. And looking at these notes, you know, he was a pioneer of hardcore wrestling. Uh, over 30 years in the business, and his career wrestled for 21 different countries, or excuse me, countries across five continents, which mm-hmm. is incredible. I mean, you talk about world traveling, he did it all. Um, also, started in Hawaii, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, the Rocks organization there, which we're going to touch on a little bit. I'm sure she's got plenty of stories. So without any oh, yeah. further wait, please welcome to the Diego and Divorce Show, Mary Freeze. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Should I call you Lord Devore or just oh, Devore? Gonna be... that, that, that was decades ago. You could just divorce okay, fine. I still, still got to call him that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, no, I pay him to call for... me that. Diego has to kayfabe at all times. Hi, Diego. Nice to, nice to <laughs> hear yes. both of you, and I'm glad to be on the show. Oh, I'm I'm absolutely happy that you're on because I know we've been back and forth for about two or three weeks, and then, yeah, we'll do the show. And I, I was very happy and super surprised that you responded so quickly to, to share the story of your father. So let, let's get down to it because I know, for those of you who don't know, before the show we like to talk to our guests and then, it wound up being its own little show itself. <laughs> so it'll be more of a recap for us, but new for you. So if you don't mind, we're going to get lost in pro wrestling history, what we grew up in. And uh, so let's start with, with you, Mary. So obvious question comes from me. It's the more and more you dig into your father's history, because we were talking about it. You showed us the pictures in the book. So especially today, you know, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the history of your father and, I mean, he, he is a legend. He's known a lot of legends. So you were throwing around a lot of names like Bruno San Martino, Roddy Piper, the Wild Samoans. And we're like, yeah, 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 keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, today is a really special day. And I am so grateful to be here, especially on January 9th, because this is the one-year anniversary of my dad's passing. He passed January 9th of 2020, which was just three months shy of his 90th birthday. And we lost so many wonderful people in wrestling, especially in the last year and even just at the beginning of this year, Danny Hodge and Brody Lee. And it's just um, my heart 
just goes out to all the families and the friends and the fans. And it's, it's really tough, but doing a show like this with people like Diego and Devore and all of your listeners who are interested in the history, just gladdens my heart and makes me feel like my dad's legacy is continuing. And it just pleases me so much to be able to talk about him. So again, thank you for having me on. And if we wanted to start at the beginning, I can give you a quick summary. My dad grew up in Buenos Aires, Argentina. His real name was Juan Kachmanian, and he's of Armenian descent, but he was born in Buenos Aires. His parents came from Turkey via Lebanon to Argentina. And so he grew up in a really multicultural, multilingual background where his own father spoke Turkish and Greek and Spanish and Armenian. And my father spoke Spanish and Armenian. And then through his travels, he picked up Portuguese and Italian. English was his fifth language. And he traveled all over the world and even spoke some Russian and Japanese. And that was one of his abilities just to connect with people from all different cultures and backgrounds. And he was so charming. Just people loved being around him. He was such a great dad and such a great person inside and outside of the ring. And when he grew up in Argentina, his father was actually a uh, contender for the Olympics as a boxer. But his father was kind of a man without a country because his father was born in Turkey. And then he ended up in an orphanage in Greece during the Armenian genocide. And then he ended up in Argentina. And so because of politics, his own father wasn't ever able to achieve his Olympic dream. And what he decided to do instead was to become a promoter. And his father promoted boxing matches in and around Buenos Aires. And he tasked my dad with timing the rounds for the boxers. And so my dad said he grew up in like the fighting and the sporting life because he would carry water and towels and time the fighters and get the rings ready and things. So he grew up in that kind of environment. And he said, but I didn't, he said, I knew boxing wasn't for me because he said, I got in the boxing ring and I knocked my opponent down and then I wanted to go over and see if he was okay. So I just couldn't, he said, I didn't like that idea of just knocking people unconscious, but he was always really strong and athletic. And of course in Argentina, soccer is just a religion. So he played soccer and ran track and did all kinds of things. And at that time in the late 1940s in Argentina, even though it was peacetime, my dad had to do mandatory military service in say 1949 for, I think it was 20 months. And one of his commanding officers thought that my dad was related to a local wrestler because of our last name, Kachmanian, was similar to the wrestler's last name. And one of the big stadiums in Buenos Aires is Luna Park. And wrestling was popular then in the late 40s and early 50s. And the sergeant said, can you get us some tickets to the wrestling match? And my dad didn't want to say no. So he, being enterprising, he was always very motivated and enterprising. And he went to Luna Park and connected with the promoter. And the promoter looked at him and said, you've got a good look and you're athletic. He said, have you ever thought about become, you know, becoming a wrestler? And my dad just, um, you know, he's like, well, yes, <laughs> yes, I have. You know, pro promoter asks you something. Yes, I can do this. I can do that. Yes, you know, I can, I'll get my gear right now. And so he started, he kind of fell into that that way. He got the tickets for his commanding officer. And then he, when he was discharged from the army, he started working out with the uh, boys, the wrestlers at Luna Park and with the promoter. And um, he, he started wrestling in Argentina. His first match was in 1952 and he was billed under a bunch of different names. So in the beginning of his career, he was Irvin the Armenian and then he became Ivan the Terrible. And so he grew his hair out and did a Russian gimmick and he wrestled with that. And the promoter said, you've got to leave Argentina. And my dad's dream 
since he was a little boy, he said his dream was to go to America. That was his dream. And he always, he'd watch the golden movie era, you know, uh, movies with Rita Hayworth and the old movie stars from the forties and Jimmy Stewart. And he said, I just always wanted to go to America. And he said, I wanted to bring my family there. And he did that through wrestling, which was really great. So from Argentina, he went to Chile and then he went to Peru. He went to Colombia, Venezuela. Then he went to Cuba he wrestled in Jamaica. This was wrestling in all these places. And again, he was wrestling under the name Ivan the Terrible. He went to Panama. He went to Mexico. And then from Mexico, he did a one-week tour in Guatemala. And then it was interesting, too, because when he was in Jamaica and Cuba, he would only go for like a week. You know, they would do a tour or some shows, and then he would keep it moving. And being a native Spanish speaker really helped him, obviously, in those travels. And when he went to Mexico, he wrestled in the late 1950s and he has scrapbooks and memorabilia that he saved, which is so cool for me that he's teaming with El Santo and he's wrestling with Gori Guerrero and uh, El Medico and uh, El Diablo and all of these famous wrestlers from, um, you know, we were so saddened when El Hijo de Paraguayo passed away because my dad had wrestled with his father and or maybe it was his grandfather, like all these second and third generation guys. Right. And so he wrestled in Mexico and then, he was able, his boyhood hero was Antonina Rocca from Argentina, who's the barefoot wrestler who just mm -hmm. was such a, a force. And Rocca really gave him an entree into the United States because Rocca had gone from Mexico, you go into Texas. And at that time, um, there were different promoters. One of them was Morris Siegel. One of them was Paul Bosch, you know, in Houston. And so my dad went into um Morris Siegel booked the match between my dad and Don Leo Jonathan, and that was in 1957. So from his first match in 1952 in Argentina, he did that like world tour <laughs> through South America. And then he came into the United States in 1957 and he won his first match with Don Leo Jonathan and that gave him the Texas belt. And then from there, um, he started wrestling. He wrestled for Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma. He teamed with Danny Hodge and just so many different names. Uh, Angelo Savoldi was another great champion back in the era in the 1950s. And um, even Gorgeous George was wrestling for Lemoy McGurk in that era of late 50s, early 60s. So the history was just incredible. And then Rocca went to New York. Rocca was teaming with Miguel Perez. And then they brought my dad in to work programs against Rocca in New York. And in that area, there was like Sunnyside Gardens and Madison Square Garden and different venues in New York. And so that was how my dad got started in the United States. You know, well, I mean, what, I, I, what a story talking about. Go ahead, go ahead. Nope. We're gonna ask. I mean, step on your feet. Go ahead. No, bro, that's fine. Because from just being asked to go get some tickets, and then <laughs> look, opportunity, right place and right time, lightning struck. Right. Star was born. That's right. So let's talk about that because he also because he wrestling in, in Puerto Rico, and I know that he's credited for being one of the pioneers of hardcore wrestling. Yes. When I was a kid, I used to go to the, the Coliseums and watch wrestling because back then, oh my gosh, I was maybe about six, seven years old because you had Abdul the Butcher was there, yeah. Eric Embry, Super Medico, uh, Carlos Colon, and then you had um, all these blood feuds, these bloody matches. And so if he's labeled, you know, being a pioneer of hardcore wrestling, did he ever tell you how bad it was down there? Because there's a lot of stories about Puerto Rico whether good or bad and yeah 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 he actually i'm looking at my i was 
uh, telling you earlier when we were a little off the record before we started recording that my dad had kept so many scrapbooks and I've been going through and trying to organize all the albums. And I have an album with a bunch of different cards and pictures from Puerto Rico and just some of the names from his era. I'm looking at a card right now. It's October 1979. And it's Carlitos Colon, you know, Carlos Colon Sr. against uh, Dirty Dick Steinborn, Cyclone Negro against my dad. And at that point, my dad was Pompero Furpo, and he had transitioned out of the name Ivan the Terrible. And there's a story behind that, I can tell you too. But um, with Puerto Rico, some other names, um, obviously Invader, they had some uh, Japanese wrestlers too. They had the fabulous Mula was there, um, Mitsu Ishikawa, Haru Sonoda, Abdullah the Butcher. So I'm looking at these cards from the late 70s, Jose Rivera. Uh, the Invaders versus Dory Funk and Terry Funk, you know, as Dory Jr. Uh, just so many different names. That was, yeah, my dad wrestled in Puerto Rico. It was in the 70s. And like you said, it was just wild. I mean, he, uh, you know, and he, he would come in often as the bad guy. <laughs> He's going to fight against the colognes. And it's like, you really have to watch your back, right? If you're going to come in as the bad guy. And it was so real. You know, when I was younger, I would ask my dad, I'd say, but it was fake, right? Was it fake? And he always said, that's a really touchy word for me. Like he never said it was fake because what they did was very real and the danger was real. And he said there would be people in the audience, you know, with knives, people with bottles yes. to throw. And he said, you just had to watch your back. And he tells a story about Buddy Rogers in the United States who'd alienated a lot of people in the dressing room. And Buddy said, you have to watch my back. And um, this was after Buddy had come back from a show previously where he'd gotten smashed over the head with a bottle and they were just picking glass out of his scalp, you know, and those kinds of things happened, obviously, with um, the tragedy of Bruiser Brody in Puerto Rico. And right. my dad teamed with Bruiser Brody and Ernie Ladd. They were a three-person tag team in Japan um, in the, I think it was 1980, I believe, my dad's last tour in Japan. Uh, he teamed with Bruiser Brody and Ernie Ladd and my dad all working together in Japan. And so I'm, it just, it haunts me it, it, that those terrifying things happened in these places where he worked. And I'm so grateful he was never um, injured. He was never, you know, stabbed or injured by fans, but there were some pretty interesting escapes where he would have to, you know, like kind of like be snuck out or hidden. Like you hear people going in the trunk or you hear people, you know, mm -hmm. he had a, a friend that he'd met in Omaha who had contacted me on Twitter. And he said, well, the reason was because my dad kind of rescued your dad from an angry mob. You know, he said your dad was outside and there was just a bunch of angry fans. And he said, he just kind of got into my car and like I shepherded him away. So those kinds of things were scary and he had some close calls, but I'm grateful that he never had any, you know, hospitalizations or any, anything. I mean, you came out, that's pretty lucky. Now, funny, I'll transition to a real quick story is related sure. to, to his Lordship. Something similar. So, <laughs> When... Oh God! Here we go. No, 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 not no. even it, twenty cool. minutes into this podcast, and you're already stirring it up. No, no. We're not gonna say what we did on TV. We did some things. <laughs> stuff happened, and the callers were calling in, and they're really, really upset at his lordship over there. So, at the point, the the owner of that TV station, I think, what did he own? Was it a Jaguar? Was it a, Ro no, it was Rolls. a Rolls Royce? And so... I thought that the Rolls Royce, because my character. Uh, was of semi-royalty and that I was extremely rich. And so they thought that his Rolls Royce was mine. And so they keyed the shit out of his Rolls Royce. Oh, and no. I, I thought that, okay, that's I'm going to get fired. I'm going to end up having to pay for a new paint job. And oh, no. uh, amazingly enough, he thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And he wasn't even <laughs> mad. 
and I was like, running, <laughs> dodged the bullet on that. <laughs> Funny thing Thank is, God, the, 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 car we were, the car we were driving, you couldn't drive it at night with the headlights because the battery would be zapped, so we had to wait till daylight. <laughs> you remember that POS? Yeah. Yes, I do. It, 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 you were able to do, I think, 45 going downhill. Yes. <laughs> But you know, getting back to this, you know, one of the things that really struck me about you is your passion for this business and your passion for your father. And because, and it strikes me because this industry, this business tears families apart and it crushes and defeats uh, children. And I think it's remarkable that you had such a, a fantastic relationship with your dad and that you can look back at it with such passion and you have a passion for it to this day. And I just, I think that's, it's an amazing thing. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And like I said, I appreciate so much uh, Lord DeVore and Diego. I, I feel like you should have a title too, like Baron Diego. You know, <laughs> well, actually Diego. he does have a title, but he doesn't like it. We were uh, interviewing Richard Tyson. And Richard Tyson said that Diego reminded him of a uh, friar. And so he wanted to call him Friar Diego. Yes. And then should we call you Padre DeVore then? Like you have to kind of be in the same same thing. (laughs) Um, Yes. You know, my dad, it it is really unfortunate the toll that the business takes on families. And my dad had started in the 50s and I was born in 75. So I think one of the parts where I kind of came out unscathed was that I was born toward the end of his career. And I remember him just really my earliest memories when I was four years old, five years old, I remember him bringing me gifts back, gifts from Hawaii, gifts from Japan. But I don't, I didn't grow up in my adolescence with him on the road because he stopped wrestling actively as a career in 1981. And at that time I was only six. And from then on, he was at home with us. My parents divorced when I was 10, unfortunately, but he, they had an amicable separation and he lived just, you know, stone's throw from where the house was, where I lived with my mom and, you know, he had an apartment and he would visit and he was still very much part of our lives. But I think that helped me kind of escape some of that longing for my dad, because even though he was on the road, the way the guys were in that era, you know, just you know, that uh, that movie that had come out was like 350 days or, you know, that there was a movie that came out a few summers yes. ago. Um, I don't know if that's the right title for it. That but is just 350 that, days. Yeah. Okay. I love that movie. I saw that movie and uh, it was, oh my gosh. So, you know, he was on the road so much like that, but at the same time, sometimes he married my mom in 1969 and they were living in Hawaii. And so sometimes she would just go on the road with him. Like she would go with him. She said, we lived then in North Carolina. We lived in Michigan. We lived in Hawaii. Then we lived in California. So sometimes she would go on the road with him, but it was actually harder for her than it was for me because she said that my dad was really strict with her about keeping kayfabe. Like she couldn't, he didn't want her working outside the home. He didn't really want her having friends with people who were outside the business. Like if there were wrestlers, wives or family members, fine. But he didn't, you know, if they were in a restaurant and somebody recognized him, he had to do that heel character, like with the wait staff and just be like bark at people or like, you know, order a piece of raw meat or something just to kind of keep up that gimmick. Like he's this wild character. So I think it was harder for her because she said that she felt kind of isolated there when he was on the road or when he was working because she had limited contact with people from the outside. And it was that I, Jake, the snake 
Roberts in the, I think it was maybe the DDP movie, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake, where he said wrestling is real and people are fake. And I just mm-hmm. got such a kick out of that, you know, and he was talking about like in the South, like wrestling's real and people are fake. And that was the era where my dad was like, he made you believe, you know, you, you really believe that he was that character. And to see him when he transitioned out of the Russian gimmick into Pampero Furpo, he would, you know, grunt and growl. And he had that grovelly voice that, um, you know, that was the inspiration for Randy Savage. In later years, my dad's catchphrase, the oh yeah, that Randy adopted. It was like you, um, you know, you, you looked at him as this kind of beast person. And to think outside the ring, he was multilingual. And so, uh, such an avid reader, <laughs> but you don't show that side to people. And so I think it was actually harder on her, especially in the early years of their marriage than it was on me. But he um, he also, you know, my dad wasn't somebody who, um, he didn't get involved in drugs. He wasn't a heavy drinker. So he connected with people in the business who were also family, you know, like real family type men, like people like Danny Hodge, Bruno Sammartino, Angelo Poffo. Um, he really was fond of Nick Bockwinkle, the crusher, uh, Luthez was like, you know, Luthez was one of the people that he respected the most, Antonino Rocco, um, Antonino Rocca. So I think part of it too was, oh, Don Leo Jonathan, you know, Don Leo Jonathan's a Mormon, so he's not going out there causing a bunch right. of problems. So that, was, that was one of the people that he stuck, he stuck with a lot. He was his first opponent in Houston. And then they went on a tour together in Japan in the late sixties. And um, also my dad was very close with the Dusick family. Joe Dusick was the promoter in Omaha in the late fifties and early sixties. And Ernie Dusick, Joe's brother was one of the people who trained my dad and the Dusicks were famous for the Dusick riot squad, which was their tag team. And it was Joe, Emil, Ernie and Rudy. And it's kind of a nod, I feel like to the riot squad in the WWE, you know, the Dusick riot squad, came first and they were actually featured in a pictorial in Vogue magazine. If you can believe it, there was just a pile of do six like, <laughs> in the, in a kind of a wrestling configuration. So, um, I, it's been great for me. It's just been an education to listen to podcasts like yours that are historical, listen to, uh, people, different historians in the business, like Bill Apter or George Napolitano, Jim Cornette, you know, different people who know that history of wrestling and are, um, inspired to keep it alive it's just it's great for me and just with what my dad told me and the scrapbooks he kept and the stories that i've read and heard and lanny poffo is also a good friend you know randy savage's brother and Mm -hmm. uh, lanny and randy first encountered my dad when angelo was in hawaii and they were teenagers and randy was they were both inspired by the way that my dad gave interviews and the cadence of his voice and the catchphrases and then you know randy adopted that and so i feel like that also is part of my dad's legacy that lives on that is incredible. Now, it is inc- very incredible because earlier before the show, you started mentioning a lot of people that knew your father and they talked to you about Pampero. So how, did any of them share a story with you about their experience with him or how they were influenced by him? If you could share a story. If any- yeah, that for sure. So um, Lanny has talked, Lanny Poffo, the, the genius Lanny Poffo has talked extensively about how when he, when Randy was, really trying to break into the like break into the superstar stratosphere that you know randy's was an excellent worker he had a great physique and he said he just would get nervous with interviews and so lanny said he himself was a great interview and randy asked lanny for some help like what can i do with my interviews and lanny said do you remember when Pampero Furpo in Hawaii would say you are watching the number one station in hawaii oh yeah and so 
Randy started practicing that and he started, and there were two wrestlers in Hawaii. It was King Curtis Iakea and my dad who just gave these kind of promos with like that, that voice. Randy was one of my favorites growing up. It must've been very Freudian. So I would listen and just like the cadence of his voice and the finger twirling and the way that he talked and his catchphrases. And, you know, he was, Randy was inspired by the, um, you know, by that with my dad and, um, he, I remember somebody on Twitter said, well, do you think you should get royalties from the Poffo family? I started laughing. I said, <laughs> you know, everyone takes from somebody. So my dad, actually, when he transitioned out of the pump, the Ivan the Terrible gimmick, he was, he got the name, um, the Wild Bull of the Pompous and Furpo as a nod to the boxing champion in the 1920s, who was Luis Angel Furpo, who fought Jack Dempsey for the heavyweight title. Luis Furpo was the first Latino fighter in Madison Square Garden to fight for the heavyweight boxing championship against Dempsey, who was the champion at the time. And it's a great story if you or your listeners um, aren't familiar. It's such a cool thing to research. But Luis Angel's Furpo's nickname was the Wild Bull of the Pompas because the Pompas are grasslands in Argentina. And so Dempsey, uh, Furpo knocked Dempsey out of the ring and Dempsey fell on the sports writers tables and the sports writers pushed Dempsey back in the ring and Dempsey then later ended up knocking out Furpo and retaining the title but the story is that you know Dempsey would have been counted out I mean he was outside of the ring and Furpo knocked him out and so when my dad started wrestling in the United States when he'd come from Mexico and started wrestling in the 1950s Jack Dempsey was a celebrity referee for my dad's earliest matches. And at that time, my dad was going by Ivan the Terrible wrestling as a Russian gimmick. And Dempsey said, he said, you should go by Furpo. He said, this was in the 1950s. So he said, you're from Argentina. You should make a gimmick like you are Luis Furpo's son. And he said, so in kayfabe, you know, your dad was Luis Furpo, this boxing champion, and you're a Pampero Furpo. A Pampero is the big hurricane that knocks everything down on the grasslands. He said, and you should also go by the Wild Bull of the Pampas. So the original Wild Bull of the Pampas was Luis Furpo. And in one of the Rocky movies, Rocky's trainer, Mickey, is talking to Rocky, and he talks about um, Furpo. And some people have thought that he was referencing my dad. And I said, no, that was the original, the boxing Furpo. You know, so everyone takes something from somebody else, but that was how he transitioned from the uh, the Ivan the Terrible gimmick to the Wild Bull of the Pompous. So we're just, I'm thrilled personally that Randy was able to take something from my dad. And the other thing too with the missing link was the promoter in Hawaii, Ed Francis, I didn't put Dave Meltzer on that list uh, earlier. Dave Meltzer with his wrestling history, I learned so much from him. Dave Meltzer is local where we live and he came to my dad's funeral and he said that the missing link name, my dad wrestled as the missing link in Hawaii in the sixties and in the seventies. And that was when you'd mentioned the Maivias were promoting there, Leah Maivia and Peter Maivia, the rock's grandfather was wrestling there. And my dad said that when he was, um, when he was, well, Dave Meltzer told me when my dad went there as Pompero Furpo, Ed Francis, the promoter there, he said he thought that was a lousy name and he wanted it to, to change it. So they started calling him the missing, missing link. And my dad wrestled and really got a kick out of uh, Bobby Heenan and Nick Bockwinkle. And then Bobby Heenan later became the manager for Dewey Robertson, who wrestled as the missing link in the WWE, uh, WWE. So sometimes friends of mine will say, oh, like, I found a picture of your dad, the missing link, and it'll be Dewey Robertson. Right. I'm like, that's the one who came after, you know. And Dewey Robertson actually wrestled in the Detroit territory with my dad 
um, in the Francis Fleecer promotion, but it was really being promoted by the original Sheik. And so there are cards with the Sheik against my dad wrestling as Pampero Furpo. And then Dewey Robertson is on the card. And so it was interesting. They crossed paths too. And I thought, I wonder if my dad had a little influence on how he say, became be in the cool later. Where they came yeah. up with that idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And well, Rod, uh, one other thing you'd asked was if anybody had told you stories, Roddy Piper just, um, was it was a thrill to meet Roddy Piper in 2015 just shortly before he passed away in 2015 my dad had Wrestlemania was here in San Jose and Lanny Poffo was accepting the Hall of Fame induction for Randy Savage and Lanny said he said you should definitely go he said I'll you know there'll be people there that your dad knows and again it was in San Jose and that's where we live and so we went my brother and I went Lanny was there we brought my dad. He got to see a bunch of his old friends like Bruno Sammartino, who he hadn't seen since the 70s. It was this great reunion. And I had wondered how he knew Piper. Piper came over right away and gave him a handshake and people were hugging. And it was so cool. He saw Jake the Snake Roberts. He saw Paul Orndorff. He saw um, Jerry Briscoe, which was really cool. You know, just people he hadn't seen in decades. And, you know, he, he didn't have the short, he didn't have that long hair. <laughs> people asked him, what happened to your long hair? And he said, well... So the time comes when you have to look a little more acceptable in society. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> that's a good answer. But Roddy Piper had told us a story that was really funny. He said that when Piper said that when he was breaking into the business, he would ride up and down with Butcher and Mad Dog Vachon. And he said, I met your dad um, in the LaBelle territory in Los Angeles, like late 70s, early 80s. That was, again, when my dad was getting out of the business, like early 80s. But he said, I remember meeting your dad there. It's where we crossed paths in Los Angeles. And people always just said, uh, like Les Thatcher, uh, Tom Pritchard, Roddy Piper, Johnny Mantel, like just people from that era always just said, your dad was so nice. Like nobody says a, a bad word about him. You know, they just said, your dad is so nice. And Piper was telling me that the Vachons, and when my dad was breaking into the business in Texas, the Vachons were two of the first people he met, and they worked together because the Vachons were wrestling as a Russian gimmick at that time. And so my dad, being Ivan the Terrible, would wrestle with my dad with Butcher and Mad Dog, and they were, I, oh my gosh, I should look it up. It was maybe like Nikolai Zolotov, like they were wrestling as Russians, and so. Butcher and Mad Dog speaking French, you know, French Canadian, and my dad also speaking Spanish, and then knowing some French, like they would just talk and you know speak in different languages together. And so Piper said, "Well, I would go up and down the road with the Vachons." He said, and they would tell me about all these ribs they pulled on your dad because he was just so good natured and kind of like easy to you know trick. And he said, like Butcher and Mad Dog together would like conspire in French and then like do something with my dad. And so he told some different stories that were so funny. He said, your dad would just, you know, get angry. And then he said, he'd start freaking out in like 17 different languages. <laughs> 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 laughing. So, um, but he had, I mean, what, a what a different kind of lifestyle back, back then. It was just so itinerant, you know, he would be in, in every, every territory you could think of, you know, he wrestled in the Bay area for Roy Shire. Then he wrestled in Oregon and he had feuds with people like Tony Bourne, who he really respected. Um, Matt Bourne, who wrestled as Doink the Clown, you know, mm -hmm. Tony Bourne was his father, tough Tony Bourne. He wrestled with Iron uh, Iron Mike DiBiase, who was mm -hmm. the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase's father. He wrestled with Randy Orton's grandfather, you know, Bob Orton Sr. Uh, he wrestled with Kurt Hennig's father, Larry the Axe Hennig, in Vern Gagne's territory in Minnesota. And so he, when my dad would go to like a Cauliflower Alley Club event or different places, it was just so 
great. He would come back with the photographs. I wouldn't accompany him. I wish I would, but he would come back with the photographs and he would just, I would get to see stars from my era growing up in the eighties. I said, Oh, that's Mr. Perfect. And then right there is Larry, the ax, his father who'd known my dad for years and years. And he was another real family man that my dad respected was Larry Hennig. And um, my dad didn't spend a, a, like years and years in Verangana's territory, but he certainly wrestled there and crossed paths with the stars that were in Minneapolis during that time. Now, speaking um, of the Cauliflower Alley, your father was inducted in 2001. Did you attend that with him? I didn't. In fact, my dad really kept the business separate from our family. And it was to my consternation because I always wanted to have him tell stories and things. And he just would he said it was his professional ethic where he just wouldn't talk about it. You know, so right. if I tried to get inside scoop about different things, he just was completely tight lipped. I mean, I, I know, I know he had crazy stories from Puerto Rico and I know he oh. had so many stories about different perform, different people, different wrestlers. And like, he just wasn't talking. So he, uh, that time when he went in 2001, I was 26 and I'm a teacher. So I was teaching during that time, but I would have loved to go with him. And I don't even know if we really knew that he was going until he got back. You know, he just was so secretive about things like that, but he, he had a good traveling companion. He's very good friends with Joanne Dusick, who's Joe Dusick's daughter. And she still lives in Omaha. And again, the Dusicks were really instrumental in being one of the first uh, promoters who really like pushed him and helped him in his early in his career. And so Joanne Dusick went with my dad and then he would accompany her when her father was being inducted into the George Tragos Luthes Hall of Fame. And so in Cauliflower Alley Club, he received an award from Nick Bockwinkle. And I put on YouTube and on my Twitter page, which is P Furpo numeral one uh, at P Furpo one, there's video with my dad from the Cauliflower Alley Club in 2001. And he's accompanied by Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan, Danny Hodge, Dr. X Dick Byer, the destroyer is there. I mean, just these like legendary people in the business. And I, again, I put some of that on YouTube. If you just search up Pompero Furpo or Pompero Furpo Cauliflower Alley Club, there's footage of him and uh, even Anton, um, uh, Antonio Inoki Rocco? There. No, it wasn't Rocco, it was Inoki. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, from, um, from Japan. And so he got to see Inoki and just different, it's it's just amazing, and so I, I wish I could have gone with him, but and that's where he also saw the Hennigs, Kurt Hennig and Larry Hennig, and um, <laughs> he did it on his own. Unfortunately, I wasn't invited. <laughs> no, I don't this... think, honestly, I don't think he even um, thought that I would be interested. You know, he just kind of kept it kept it uh, different. But he really, in his tours, he loved Japan and he loved um, Antonio Inoki and he, he really respected Inoki and Baba. So again, I was always trying to get him to like gossip or tell me the scoop. I say, well, who did you like better? You know, who did you like better? And he'd say, well, he said, Inoki was untouchable. And he'd say, and Baba was a master. Like he just, you know, he would just say good things about people a lot of the time. And he said, and Luthez was just the big daddy of everyone. And he's like, Danny Hodge was a real shooter. And he wrestled with um, Iva in, with the Iron Sheik, who was going as under the name Hossein Arab in Verngania's territory. And so he really respected him too. I, we were looking at some pictures and he saw a picture of the Iron Sheik and he said, he's a real shooter. He said, he is a real shooter and like a true, genuine, tough guy. Like he's really legit, you know? Uh, so he, I think he also connected with people like the Iron Sheik or people uh, like Pedro Morales, you know, who are from different countries because he, and maybe that was another reason why he avoided uh, some of the pitfalls that 
happen in the wrestling business because he was always kind of an outsider in a way he came from a foreign country he wasn't a native english speaker so in a way that made him hard it made it harder for him but in another way i think that it maybe prevented him from getting into trouble (laughs) that maybe he could have gotten into go ahead i'm sorry you're mentioning iron sheik and he's a double tough guy to shooter why would know if the kids today don't know Iron Sheik? Go to his Twitter and that what that man says. Don't mess with that guy. You know damn well you, something's gonna happen because those twitters are out of control. But hey, you know that's just Sheik, right? So I love his gonna... Twitter. When my dad passed away, I love when he he inserts the into everything like T H E. And so when my dad passed away, his tweet was God bless the Pompero Furpo forever. Not just God bless Pompero Furpo, it was the Pompero Furpo forever. And I said, amen to that. So um, yeah, what an, you know, he's such an, an interesting, I mean, who, where else in wrestling do you find characters like this? You know, not, I don't mean characters like they're wrestling character, just as people, like they're such right. characters, you know? Uh-huh. Speaking of Pedro Morales, uh, looking at the notes here, uh, he challenged Pedro Morales in the Madison Square Garden for the then WWF championship. Um, I just I find that is so cool how how much of his career spanned and yes. the things that he did. And like you said, especially for him, he was I don't want to say he was behind a curveball, but outsiders per se were treated differently. So he had to work yes. double tough to get those opportunities and to take that ball and run with it for 30 years is just amazing. Yes. Thank you. And that was working for Vince McMahon senior in the WWWF. And he was brought in to work programs with Pedro and chief Jay Strongbow was another wrestler during that period also. And he loved Pedro. He always, when I'd ask him about Pedro Morales, he'd chuckle and say, Pedro is such a good kid. You know, I think like their Latin heritage and ability to speak Spanish to each other and just really helped their relationship. And I was asked if he, my dad had creative license in those matches. And I think that he did. I think that Vince McMahon senior, you know, it's very different obviously from junior and the promotion that's there today. But my dad kind of would tell these stories in kind of an oblique way. Like I said, he wouldn't really divulge a bunch of different details or things. He really kept things kayfabe, even with the family, but he, the way from the little things he would kind of drop while he was talking, it seemed to me that he had license with Pedro to kind of work their match, how they saw fit. And it was, he was said that, you know, he would be like beating up Pedro and he said the people would just be coming out of their seats, like this Puerto Rican champion in New York. Right. And he said like these little old ladies and he, he remembers being like hit with purses and you know, that uh-huh. like the hat pin Mary thing, like they're going to stick you with the pin. And he said that he and Pedro was easy to work with. And he said the two of them working together, they understood the psychology and he understood how to get heat on himself as such a vicious character. Like he's just going to tear him limb from limb. And like I said, he just made you believe. And Pedro was such a perfect baby face champion. He just was so agreeable and just like had that sweet clean cut look about himself. I mean, they were a great, uh, they were, they were great together. And that was, again, my dad's, not my dad's first time in New York. Like I'd said before, he'd been there earlier and had worked programs with Rocca and with Bruno in the sixties. And those cards are just amazing too, with Buddy Rogers. And like I said, gorgeous George, and just the history is, it's fantastic. It just pleases me so much that he was a part of that. And like you said, it was, he wasn't coming in as a second or a third generation 
American wrestler whose father or grandfather had broken in, into the business. It was amazing to me how he was able to advocate for himself. And sometimes people ask me, like, why was his run so short in the WWWF? Or why did he only spend a certain amount of time in different territories? And part of that, I think, was because he really advocated for himself with the promoters. And he wasn't willing to accept less money than he thought he was worth. And he said, I always say this without, not to brag, he said, just I say this to humbly but he said I was a box office draw wherever I went he said I knew how to stir people up he said I was he said there's you know preliminary there's undercard there's main event and then there's like the box office draw and he said when I came in people were excited to see me like I drew money and I think that sometimes his runs in different places may have been shorter because he fought for what the payday that he thought he was worth. And there was always some place for him to go. It just became harder, especially with my mom. My brother was born in 1970. And so she had talked about kind of uprooting him. And, you know, she said, when he starts kindergarten, we have to kind of stay in one place, you know, and that was, I think it became a little harder maybe to travel the way he had when he had been single, because now that he had a young family, you know, my mom and the kids would have to stay in one place, then he could go out on the road. But there in that era with the territories, the thing that was nice about that in a way is there was always a payday and usually a very good payday in certain places where you had big crowds who were interested in seeing him. And he always said to all the fans, he said, I love the fans. And he said, I'm grateful to the business because it allowed me to accomplish. He said, I accomplished my destiny. It was to come to America. And he said, whether the fans loved me or hated me, they demanded my action and they paid to see me. And he said, that was just the biggest gift that he could be this self-made man and, and do what he loved in the place that he wanted to be. And my dad has two sisters, both still alive in their 80s. And he brought his two sisters and his parents from Argentina to the United States. And everyone lives here in California. And that was a big thrill and blessing for him too, because he was such a family man. He was so family oriented. He always, he was the big brother. So he always talked about and protected his little sisters and was so uh, kind of a mama's boy, you know, with his mom and dad and was just so reverent toward them. And that was such a blessing too, that wrestling rather than um, being bitter about the business or what it took from him. It's like, he was always grateful that he was able to establish himself and his family in the United States, which was his dream since he was a little boy. Now, before we go any further, we do have some questions. Some fans wanted to know, uh, sure. Diego, you have the list. Fire away. I got a couple questions from a little Stan Grubb. You know who he is. And so we asked it earlier. I think you touched on it earlier. So when he was the missing link, the original missing link. Yes. It's it's the same question in kind of two parts. So transitioning from Furpo to missing link, whose ideas was it? Was it his own or promoters? And piggybacking on that question is once he was – out of the ring done in regular street clothes. Anybody, anybody recognize him outside of the ring? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I had mentioned earlier that Dave Meltzer had told me it was the promoter Ed Francis idea in Hawaii to transition. My dad in Hawaii was known as the missing link. And I'd asked my dad, I said, what was your favorite territory to wrestling? So I knew he loved going to Japan and he said it was Hawaii. And I said, why? He said the people there loved me because he wrestled as a baby face in Hawaii. They just loved him. And in most other territories, he was a heel and then he could increase his run by working heel and then turning face, you know, and then having some matches working with the, you know, that side of the locker room. But and for the most part, he was a heel. I mean, he was a natural heel and he loved that. That was just natural for him. He looked 
wild. He acted wild. He sounded wild. But when he was in Hawaii, he was a baby face. And regardless of how you tried to make him bad in Hawaii, it was like they just loved him. And so I was looking at some cards here with during his era. This is in the 1970s. And on the card is it's a three man tag team with my dad as the missing link with John Tolos and Billy White Wolf. And they're facing strong Jesse Ventura and a wrestler named Tomayo. So I thought that's really cool. He's got, <laughs> I mean, so many people, right? Jesse Ventura on that card that was from my era. And then um, on the, in some of the cards from Hawaii, he's, you know, Nick Bockwinkle was there for a while. The wrestlers, especially people in California, like my dad would stop in Hawaii on their way to and from Japan. And he loved being in Hawaii. I mean, it was just so beautiful. Don Morocco's on one of the cards here, Buck Zumhoff, who we won't talk about. <laughs> Rock, rock and roll bus zoom off. We don't want to go there. And then this is um, by Ed Francis to Andre the Giant. That's Andre. The, there's a video up on YouTube with my dad and Andre the Giant. It was in 1981. They were in a battle royal with the Samoans, and it was from Hawaii. And my dad is the missing link uh, wrestling there. But in the battle royal, it's my dad, the wild Samoans, Andre the Giant. My dad and Andre are back to back. My dad's five foot eight, and Andre's build is seven foot six. You know, and they're just looking. I mean, they're side by side. It's 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 so cool. But in Hawaii, he was especially recognized because he lived on the island with my mom for almost two years. And there's even a story where the um, the Hawaii Five-0 series was filmed in Hawaii, and they had recruited my dad to be in one of the episodes. And he... <laughs> They had had him in a minor role and he was supposed to be like roughing up Jack Lord, the star of the show. And again, because my dad was kayfabe and he's like, I can't be on the show as a bad guy. He's like, I have to be the good guy. I'm the hero. I'm the missing link. He's like, I will come in the show. I will save the day. Like he had his own, like he had to rewrite the script for the show. Right. So my dad goes in and I will save the show. And you know, Jack Lord will say, you know, missing link, you're the only person who could have helped us in this situation. And so, you know, he came in with all of his rewrites and the producers were like, well, you know, with all due respect, we already have a star of the show. And my dad decided not to be on the episode because he said, I have to stay in the character with how the people know me and love me. And he was on the local news doing the weather sometimes, you know, so people on the island just loved him. And he did the promos for, um, you know, like, how Lanny Papo said, you're watching the number one station in Hawaii. And he'd go, oh, yeah. You know, he'd do his, oh, yeah. And so my mom remembers that when they'd be just walking out and about in Hawaii, people would yell at him. They'd yell, oh, yeah. And they'd yell, there's the, they called him the link. And then he wrestled with um, Peter Maivia, who he is very fond of. And Peter Maivia was the chief. My dad was the link and then Nef Mayava was the prince. And so he's like the prince, the chief and the link. And so people would just yell his catchphrase at him. And he was very popular there. And even it's surprising, but my dad's had such a distinct face, even without the hair and the beard. I got married in Maui in 2003. My dad was 73 and he came to Hawaii for the wedding and we were standing in the elevator and the people at the rental car place and in the hotel recognized him from when he was there in the late 70s, in the 60s and 70s as a wrestler. And they called him The Link. And my brother and I looked at each other like, we can't believe it. And partly it was because they'd heard his voice. He had such a distinct voice. And his eyes, you just look. And he used to say, look into my eyes. You look in his eyes and you hear his voice. And people, it was so special to me. He, you know, as much as people loved him, he just loved them back. And we've seen before in Hawaii and other places, people would get tears in their eyes and hug him and just say how much 
he was an important part of their childhood and they used to pretend to be him when they were younger and they would, you know, put the El Garfio, the claw hold on or do those catchphrases. And just to know that he inspired people like the people in the 80s inspired me when I was a kid. It's just such a cool part of uh, wrestling history. So I think that, I answered that question in my long-winded oh, way. No, oh, no, no, that's, that's great. A very, it's, it's a great answer. So coming from me, this is a question actually from me. Um, so with all the traveling that he did and uh, his reputation worldwide, you know, his character's reputation, what does, when Furpo comes home, what, how was he, not saying how was he as a dad, but what did he do with you guys? Because he had to turn it off at some point and then... Yeah, I think he's he's actually really good about not, um, you know, is the way I could explain it is that he wasn't like a star in the family, like he didn't have that ego around the family. And so he was very mild mannered, uh, gentle, he slept a lot, because he would come home from his shows and his travels and just be sleeping, you know, he had that schedule on the roads, he'd be sleeping until noon or later, you know, catching up on sleep, but he loved his family and was raised by his parents and with his sisters and was always a protector and they were very warm. And so he was like that with the kids in the neighborhood. Like the kids would say, uh, they say, I saw Mary and Julie and John's dad on TV because Roy Shire had a promotion here in the Bay area and it was uh, KTVU channel two out of San Francisco. And then I heard, I think it was Meltzer talking about how um, somebody in the Roy Shire's promotion like pissed off the TV people and they lost their contract. And so unfortunately, like that wrestling was on, it was right in our backyard. And so even though he was even, he was well known and wrestled in that, in the seven, in these late seventies, like really, or like 1980, the people in Roy Shire's promotion included Ray Stevens, who was like the big, you know, the big star, Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. And my dad worked with both of them and was sorry to hear about losing Pat again, you know, just a couple months ago, but my dad had, and my dad had great respect for Ray Stevens. He loved Ray Stevens. And so it was, you know, Ray Stevens, Pat Batterson, Kinji Shibuya, Pepper Gomez, Peter Maivia in that territory. Also, um, Meltzer said all the kids would imitate my dad and his promote, his promos and his catchphrase and things like that. So uh, my point is that even though he was wrestling here in the Bay area and people knew him and he was well-known, he was just a really good dad, like really funny, really protective. My friends will say, I remember your dad, like pushing, like doing push-ups on wooden blocks in the garage. And he was always like working out and doing calf raises. And, um, but when you saw him, like he, you know, he put his hair back in a ponytail. He wouldn't have that wild hair and he always had the long beard, but he always looked neat and professional. And I would bring him to my class when I was in like second grade and third grade and he would do show and tell. And the kids just loved him because he just looked, he still looked pretty wild. You know, a lot of dads didn't look like that. He still had the beard and he had the long hair and he would talk to the kids. He wouldn't talk to them about any professional secrets, but he would talk to them about staying with a clean lifestyle. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't do drugs. And all the kids would just try to hang on him because he was very, um, stocky you know he was yes. five eight but he was like the wild bull he had these he had huge his shoulders and arms and the kids would kind of pull on him and like grab his hair and then they would all get in a line this was in like 82 and he would do like a body slam and just like turn them upside you know turn them upside down and then put them on their feet and they would just be laughing and cheering so it was it was really fun growing up with him but he didn't make himself the star of the show in our family or anything like that he was always just very supportive and after he'd stopped wrestling he 
um, got on with the post office in the mid 1980s. That was a huge blessing because he'd worked at the post office until he was in his late 70s. And from then he had amazing health benefits. You know, he lived another almost 12 years and he was able with his post office pension to sustain himself at a good level of income at, you know, having benefits and things, you know, wrestling, you know, even you could make six figures back in the seventies and eighties, but it was a hard grind. And what do you do after that? You know, after you stop wrestling and here he is um, coming from Argentina with a high school diploma, no college education and being a wrestler for 30 years. It's like, what do you do? So I'm so grateful that he had that. He got that government job. And even at the post office, like they would do write-ups about him. And uh, Dave Meltzer says, I'm sure your dad processed. He never delivered mail, but he processed. I'm sure he processed the Wrestling Observer newsletter here, like as he was, you know, and he was featured in it. And he's like processing that mail. But, you know, after wrestling and he, he didn't, um, associate himself very much he said that he had offers to be a manager to go on the road and do things and he just he was done and my sister and the youngest of three kids my sister was born in 1973 and she had cancer and was diagnosed as a child it was a non-genetic bone tumor in her leg and my dad also wanted to be home for her treatments because she went through chemo in 1979 80 81 and at that time he just was done with wrestling you know he'd done it for over 30 years and he despite different offers and he would have been great as a broadcaster a translator with different talent from but he just uh i think he was he was done being a road warrior you know i think he just didn't want the the lifestyle anymore so he felt i think he felt like he quit the business on his terms you know he quit when he was still able to wrestle i mean he was 51 having that match with the Samoans and Andre was 49 when he was wrestling those cards against Ventura and with Tolos. And I think with his hair and his beard and because he was uh, like in that gimmick, you know, he didn't have to like take the bumps that he had to, or maybe, and he always looked really young, but he didn't, you know, look maybe as old as he would have. Like he, I think the beard and the hair kind of helped obscure that a little bit. I have a question from Gregory Price. Sure. Gregory would like to know what is something that you could tell us about, him that would surprise both wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans something that nobody would ever guess about him oh man well if it was just wrestling fans who saw him in the ring they would be shocked that he was multilingual because he seemed like he didn't even have a command of english and he could speak Mm -hmm. multiple languages you know for for just a casual fan who maybe didn't know his story um Uh, What else? I think another surprising thing would be that he worked at the post office following his wrestling career. So again, for casual fans who didn't really dive deep into his career, just to know that there was life after wrestling for him. Um, I think fans would be maybe surprised and glad. And like you said at the beginning of the show, that he didn't harbor any bitter or angry feelings toward the wrestling business, you know, it was uh, something that he always looked at favorably, like it, it allowed him to bring his, had to establish a family, bring his family here, have a career, do what he loves. So gosh, I'd have to think that's a really good question. Gregory Price. I'd have to think about that a little bit. Um, <laughs> he also, Oh, I have a good one. I, I will know my dad. This is a very, this one is great. 
when my dad was wrestling, he carried with him a shrunken head. And Al Snow had said later that Al Snow, when he carried head, that was also kind of a nod to my dad. He said that my dad was one of his favorites growing up as a boy. And my dad carried that little head with him, right? And so Al Snow later carried head. So it was this little, um, he said it was a shrunken head and my dad called it Chimu, C-H-I-M-U. He said Chimu. And I'm so sorry that a lot of this footage is lost, like from when my dad was working in the Sheik's territory and for Vern, like he gave these great promos with the Crusher and the Bruiser and the Vachans. And I just wish there was video of these things. You know, I just wish so much. So anyway, he carried this shrunken head with him and he would rub this shrunken head and he would say, you know, you're next. Like this is Chima, this is what I'm going to do to you. Like you're going to be this shrunken head. And what would surprise people is, you know, me watching that at home or seeing it, I would think, well, maybe that's just from the Halloween spirit store. That's just a prop. It was an authentic shrunken head. It was a legit shrunken head that my dad had gotten in South America when he had started early in his career. So at the beginning of the show, I was talking about how he had gone to all of these different places. And uh, one of the countries that he'd also gone to was Ecuador. And he said that he had gotten the shrunken head from a tribal leader in Ecuador. And it was a real shrunken head. And I had asked him, this is so weird. Um, I had never seen it before growing up. And I asked my mom, I'd say, where's Chimu? Because my dad had his wrestling gear and things. They were packed away in trunks. And he had those like Halliburton, like those silver suitcases. Like he had his gear. It was almost like packed, ready to go to a show, right? And everything was locked. And I said, I want to see Chimu. And my dad like really wouldn't talk about it. And I'd asked my mom, you know, after they got divorced, I said, whatever happened to Chimu? And she said, I think your dad had it made into jewelry. And I said, how do you make a, like a shrunken head into jewelry? Like, oh, what, wow. like, what, I thought, like what the heck? So, um, and I, I'd ask my dad, he'd say, yes, it was real, you know, but I had never seen it. And so when I was an adult, I was in my thirties and my brother, my dad had moved into assisted living. Um, after my parents divorced, he never remarried. And so he lived on his own, just independently in an apartment in the last five years of his life. It was kind of a senior community and it was great because as his needs for care increased, it increased you know, their, their services increased with them, but a lot of it was just like, they would do his laundry, they would do the cooking, you know, it was like, you know, it was, it was great for him when he was in his eighties. So when he moved into assisted living, my brother and I were helping to clean out and organize his apartment. And uh, my brother had found Chimu in this suitcase and he didn't tell me, and Chimu was not made into jewelry. He was this real shrunken head. And oh, when I asked my dad, I said, well, how did you get this from this tribal leader? Was it a political enemy of his? Was that one of his family members? Was this a good talisman or was it dark? Like this omen? You're like, how did you get this? And my dad, he, he didn't really say, he said he just was very impressed by me. He said he was impressed by my stamina and he was impressed by my strength and he gave it to me as an honor. And I said, do you know who this wow. person was? And he said, no, I didn't know. So anyway, I'd never seen it. I just had heard the lore of Chimu and I'd seen it in the pictures that he kept in his scrapbook. So I was just <laughs> my sister was in the hospital at the time and she had fallen asleep and I was standing there kind of keeping vigil and my brother just kind of sauntered into the room and my, you know, my brother's got this great sense of humor. He's like a worker, like my dad, and he's standing there and he's got these jeans on and you have the little pockets in the front of your blue jeans. And he said, Oh, Hey, so guess what I found today? Just really casually. And he pulls it out of his pocket and he just sticks it right in my face. And he says, it's Chimu, like really excited. And this thing is the creepiest. I have pictures of it on Twitter. It's just this shriveled up. It's about the size of like a chicken, uh, between like a chicken drumstick there. <laughs> yes, 
Lord Devore showing me a picture between like a chicken drumstick and a turkey drumstick. Like that's the, the what this thing reminds me of. It's about the size of it. And you can kind of grab it around its neck and it's shriveled up and it's petrified and its mouth is stitched and it's got this like cottonish white hair. And it's just so spooky looking. It's just um, there's a writer who I love, Mike Mooneyham, who writes wrestling columns in a uh, newspaper that uh the post courier newspaper and mike mooneyham when he was writing about my dad he called it a macabre oddity and i said that's just a perfect way to say that it's like it's just a macabre oddity and so there's my brother he just pulls it out of his pants pocket and so my brother has custody of chimu um there's there's a little more about him it's a post and courier story that mike mooneyham wrote and mike mentioned chimu and uh it's, it's so that might surprise people that it was actually a real authentic shrunken head. And my dad said that he called it Chimu because it was the god of good luck from that Ecuadorian tribe. They said Chimu meant good luck. And so he said it brought me good luck and he traveled with it. It has this little velvet bag that it sits in at my brother's house and you, you just will pull it out. And it's like, oh, my goodness. So that might surprise people. Chimu was real. You have to put it in a bag. It's like, it's looking at me, Ray. Nope. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have a huge dog. I have a yellow lab at home, and he just gets his mouth on everything. And um, I had had it, and I just set it down for a second, and I saw my dog going toward Chimu, and he tried to, like, grab it in his oh. mouth. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, i got to keep Chimu away from you. So I'm, I'm glad that it's at my brother's because I have children running around, and I have the dog, and I feel like he's just safe and protected in the velvet bag, in the Halliburton Perfect. suitcase. Um, next question comes from Henry Martinez and he wants to know, was there ever an opponent that he wrestled that things turned real or ended up being real? And yes, I yes. never want to see that guy again. I'm going to beat him. Yes. Up. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I've never said this uh, out loud, but it was Carl Gotch who really tried to hurt him. And I, I hadn't even seen that name in his scrapbook. So in his, scrapbooks from Detroit he had killer Carl Cox and I said Carl Cox like K-O-X and he said no Carl Gotch and he just would say it with like such derision because um, I know Carl Gotch just like Danny Hodge and Luthez were real shooters and with Carl Gotch that mindset of not liking people maybe like you said who are the hardcore wrestlers or in gimmick it's like he was going to take liberties with them and my dad um my dad also not being American, I think worked in his disfavor sometimes in ways like that too, just the mentality of the day, like he was a foreigner, he was an outsider. Um, and he said that it was Carl Gotch and it was one other person and they were tag team. And he said, they dropped me on my head. Like he said, and my dad always said, if not for my 23 inch neck, I would have become a vegetable. Like I would have been paralyzed. I would have broken my neck. So that's the first time I've ever said that out loud. Um, wow. But yeah, he said that that was, that was something that happened to him. And my dad had an injury. He would, one of the stories about him as wrestlers would say, your dad always told me, don't touch my stomach. I will die. Don't kick me in the stomach. Cause he had this huge scar up and down his, it was like a vertical scar on his abdomen. And people have asked if that was also sustained, uh, like in Puerto Rico, like did somebody stab him or was that a wrestling related injury? And in the kayfabe magazines, he said that in different places, he said, oh, well, I was in Omaha and they attacked me with knives or they, but it, it wasn't that it was just a medical issue. I think it was, a um, like a perforated intestine. Like there was just something medical. It wasn't necessarily related as an injury. So the only one that he really said, one I remember was just Carl Gotch. And he said it with like such disdain that, you know, it was my dad, 
was not somebody who would take liberties to hurt people. Like people would say, oh, well, he worked stiff, but it, like he wasn't trying to end your career. You right. know, it wasn't something that he would do. He didn't rib people. He didn't take, um, you know, he really, he told a story about how a promoter in South America had told a prospective wrestler like you need to go pull your teeth out to look a certain way and my dad told the wrestler he's like don't do that you know the promoter is just trying to um like uh, like have his fun with you like don't do you know so he always kind of looked out for people and I think that was especially um uh like insulting to him that somebody would try to hurt him but he always just said success breeds envy like if you're successful if you have your own thing like people other people will try to take you out and so he definitely had to be on guard uh, with people in the business. But I, I just, I remember hearing that story and just, he said, they dropped me on my head. Like they did that to hurt me. And I would always wonder too, I said, well, you know, were people compromised? Like, were they on substances? Like, what do you think they were on drugs or drinking? And I don't think that was part of it at all. I think it was just a deliberate attempt to take them out. Wow. Yeah. It was definitely a different time back then. Um, certain things like that they still happen today um i remember uh one guy uh he made it to a tryout for the wwe and as a rib they told him to come back with blonde hair so he bleached mm -hmm. his hair and then they told him to come back with a tattoo so he went mm -hmm. out and got tattoos and they, were, they had no intentions of signing him they mm -hmm. just wanted to see how far they could push the ribs hmm it's a shame. That's awful. So, a question. So, with your with your father once he retired, and then, how was the transition from being a global star and then leaving wrestling behind for his second career, and then he retired from that career as well? How was the transition? Was there a struggle to turn it off, or it was kind of like I'm ready? That's a really good question. Around the around. Uh, his children, like my sister, my brother and me around the family, he was just Juan, you know, he would never was, we didn't call him Furpo or Ferb or Pompero. And he, I, I, there must've been some internal angst about that, about stepping away from it, but he never shared that with us. And he stayed in touch with some of the people from the business. Like he had a good relationship with Nick Bockwinkle. And um, before he passed away, I was able to have him connect with Jim Rashke, who was Baron Von Rashke. And they had the claw versus claw matches, you know, and that signature hold of his, the claw, like he had programs with Fritz Von Erich and he even worked the Von Erichs were in Puerto Rico when my dad was there. So Carrie Von Erich was in Puerto Rico and, um, I don't think it was Kevin. I think it was Carrie and David. And anyway, so, you know, there were people from the wrestling community who really loved him. The Crusher was another one, you know, the big star in Milwaukee, the Crusher and the Bruiser and Bulldog Don Kent. And, you know, he had a good relationship for years with the Sheik, the original Sheik in Detroit. So I think that that helped his transition was that there were people who he could connect with who still wanted his input or wanted him around or wanted to talk to him or wanted him for signings. And he would get, you know, the signings in those shows. I think John Arezzi was one of the people who had started doing those conventions and things. And people would reach out to him to get him to come to signings. And um, he, he really wouldn't do it. I think he went to just a couple. He just went to maybe two Cauliflower Alley events. He went to a signing in Atlanta. And I was worried. He was 81 when he did that. He was 80 or 81. And somebody asked him to come to Michigan and then somebody else had asked him to come to Atlanta. And, and 
there were only a few states that he didn't wrestle in and he didn't wrestle in Mississippi. And I don't think he was in Atlanta for very long. He didn't wrestle in Florida either. And I said, well, if you go to Atlanta, do you think, like I was thinking in my head, I thought, I wonder if people will even know who he is because he's 80 and you know, that wasn't a big territory where he worked. And when he came back from that signing, he just had tears in his eyes and he said, it's just so emotional. I can't talk about it. He said there were, like dozens and dozens of people in line to meet me and people with their children and grandchildren. And, you know, that's like the, such a great thing about wrestling. Like the fans are so loyal and it's, mm-hmm. it, people just have those memories in their heart. Like I remember, you know, this is my grandfather who told my father stories about you and now I'm a wrestling fan as a kid. And so it was such a, a meaningful experience for him. And I wish he would have done more of that when he was in his sixties and seventies and he didn't. And I don't know again, if maybe that was some internal, um, thing like you said you know if you're done you just kind of have to be done with it or but he didn't you know he didn't ever express the desire to like really get back in the ring or to go manage or um i think he just was did he watch the product later in life well he did um he i mean he was amazed by the things that people are doing these days he's just absolutely amazed by the athleticism and the you know they're he wrestled all over the world. So he saw the style in Japan and in Mexico and South America and, you know, just different places. He did a tour for Jim Barnett in Australia and, you know, just, he was, he was all over the place with so many different people, but the things they're doing today, just the, you know, not just a moonsault off the top rope, but off the top of a cage and like a Canadian destroyer, like with somebody else, you know, I just, I mean, he, he had, uh, known Stu Hart, another real shooter, and he saw Stu Hart at the Cauliflower Alley Club. And, um, you know, Brett, I met Brett and saw him at WrestleMania, and he was so sweet and just sweet to my dad. And uh, Brett, Brett said it was him. My dad said it was Owen. One of the Hart boys got a ticket taking my dad to the airport. And I think he said he was only maybe 15. I thought, why were you driving? But anyway, my dad said it was Owen. He said Owen was such a good kid. And he, he said he got a ticket taking me to the airport when I'd gone up to see Stu. And Brett said, no, that was me. He said I was the one driving your dad. But anyway, with um, <laughs> uh, I just lost my train of thought. But <laughs> what was the original question? I swear I'll get back to it. <laughs> was, was the transition coming out of it? Was it rough? Oh, no, my question. My question was, was, did you watch a product? Modern day wrestling. Yes. Okay. Because I knew it had something to do with the heart. So I, uh, I know that he has his personal issues and problems, but I'm always totally amazed by Teddy Hart. I mean, regardless of his personal life, just his talent, right? And the things that Teddy Hart was doing when he was younger that people weren't quite doing yet, you know? And so I'd show my dad, I said, Hey, this is a third generation. I said, look, this is Bret Hart's nephew. And this is Stu's grandson. I said, watch this little um, like highlight reel on YouTube. And my dad was like, I can't believe they're doing these things. You know, I just can't believe that they're doing these things. So when he would watch the modern product, he would just kind of wince like, Oh my gosh, like they're, they're, they're hurting themselves. Like they're putting themselves Mm -hmm. in danger, like their bodies, you know, he would, I think it was um, that was his reaction to a lot of the modern stuff. Like, what are they doing to themselves? Are they going to be able to walk? You know what I mean? Like, just kind of worrying. I think for them long term. Um, the other thing that he would do is it was our ritual before he passed away. Every Sunday, I would bring him to my house and I would put YouTube on. And he, the favorite things he loved to watch were wrestling from the Chicago Amphitheater, like early '60s. And he loved it was like Buddy Rogers, uh, Pat O'Connor. Luthez, like he would love those matches. That was what he wanted to watch. He loved Luthez. And so he would watch wrestling, but he would watch wrestling from that golden era. And then I would put promos on for him with like 
uh, Bobby Heenan and Nick Bockwinkle, like the AWA stuff with the crusher. And he would just get such a kick out of that because those were his memories. You know, there's not too much of my dad on YouTube. There's one or two of his classic promos. There's a little bit of footage from him, but I would mostly put things on because he also, his memory wasn't great as he got older. It was pretty sharp up until maybe when he was 81, 82. But as he got into his mid and later 80s, as his memory started fading, it was like he just knew the old stuff, you know, and I felt like that was so rich just to show him. And, you know, if he couldn't, if he couldn't remember somebody's name, I would show him, uh, you know, Nick Bockwinkle and he would start laughing and he would launch into an impression of Jim Barnett or Nick Bock. You know, he just would, he knew the old things. So a lot of times he would watch the old things, but certainly, you know, seeing some of the modern things, like I said, he'd gone to WrestleMania in 2015 and we were kind of up in the box, like watching. And that was when Rusev came to the ring in a tank. And my dad was just like, you know, the spectacle. I mean, there were the theatrics and the spectacle, but to the extent like the pyro, you know, there were just things that didn't happen in the 60s and 70s. You know, there wasn't the entrance music and the pyro and the, you know, certainly not like a tank coming to the ring. I mean, it was um, a different world, but things evolve. You know, he never said anything like negative about today's wrestling. He just, uh, he he was gladdened that wrestling is still... He said, you know, long live professional wrestling. Like he was glad that it's still um, uh, still, still alive and well, you know. Still yes. very active today. So because you talk about there's not much footage of him online. So before we, we get going here in a little bit, can you tell us about your social media and how new fans, which we'll have a lot of new fans after this, uh, of your father, where can they find more inform- information about Pampero? Oh, well, thank you for asking. And I have a Twitter account and it's P and it's Furpo. It's F is in Frank. It's P is in Paul, F is in Frank, I-R, P is in Paul, O, P Furpo with the numeral one, P Furpo one on Twitter. And I'm really active with, if you go into the media section of my Twitter page, there's so many different pictures and clippings and photos from the golden age from uh, different. There's a picture of him wrestling Randy Savage in the Detroit territory. I think it was in Ohio. And he's got Randy's got a Macho Man T-shirt on, and my dad's got him in kind of like a Boston Crab type, like surfboard type hold. And I said, "There's Oh Yeah Senior and Oh Yeah Junior wrestling each uh, other." Yeah. There's pictures with like <laughs> there's cool. pictures with Andre the Giant, and there's pictures, like I said, with Danny Hodge and Gorgeous George and uh, Buddy Rogers and Bruno, and just all these historical things. So I post those. My dad kept scrapbooks of these different clippings and articles. And these are the original documents from 50 years ago, from 60 years ago when he started in Houston in the 1950s. So I've taken it upon myself here in my leisure time to put those, make those digital and put those memories online. And I also have a YouTube uh, channel where if you just go onto YouTube and look for Pampero Furpo, um, my YouTube is Mary Elizabeth CA, like California, Mary Elizabeth CA. And I posted, if you Google like Pompero Furpo Cauliflower Alley Club, Pompero Furpo Olympic Auditorium, Pompero Furpo with the Sheik, there's different matches. And a lot of it, the, the video, unfortunately, from the Olympic Auditorium, which is in Los Angeles from the 70s, it's like somebody with an eight millimeter just shot it, you know, and it's like this vibrating kind of uh like it looks like the film you would thread into a projector and there's not sound, which is unfortunate, mm-hmm. but you still get a sense. It's my dad when he won the, um, 
NWA championship three times. And one of the times he won the belt was against the King Ernie Ladd, who again, just huge football player, you know, big tall guy. And there's my dad who's five foot eight, but you see them working together. And again, it's, it's believable. Like you watch them wrestling and you know, it's, uh, it's so cool. So that match I put on YouTube and it's from the Olympic auditorium with my dad. And again, unfortunately there's no sound, but you can see him working. There's my dad and the Sheik in a cage match. There's John Tolos, um, John Tolos for the, I say younger fans, but people in their forties, John Tolos did a short stint in the WWF in the eighties as Kurt Hennig, Mr. Perfect's manager, they called him coach. And he'd be in the background and the whistle blowing the whistle. And that was the golden Greek, John Tolos. And he and his brother, Chris Tolos were uh, wrestlers during my dad's era in the seventies. They worked programs together with them. And also Greg Valentine, Greg, the hammer Valentine and his dad, Johnny Valentine. I have some, like I said, just photos and clippings and articles. And uh, like you had said, it was an over a 30 year career. I mean, it's just amazing. So if anybody's interested in learning more, please hit me up on Twitter. And I'm so happy to connect with both of you and so happy to be on the show. It was just a pleasure. Perfect. The pleasure's all on this side of the table. And (laughs) I'm glad there's a lot of surviving footage out there from this long career. So definitely, I, I just on the side pulled up YouTube. So it's what I'll be doing probably for the next hour or so. Just go ahead. And oh, good. It. Yes. Good. And then for you younger fans <laughs> out there are that are going to discover this, um, collar and elbow actually has a Pampero Furpo shirt that you yes. can get. So go to C3 collar and elbow and get your shirt. Yes, thank you. And all the proceeds from the shirt, Collar and Elbow is the wrestling wear company that is um, started by Al Snow. And the shirt, all the proceeds from the shirt go to the Cauliflower Alley Club. So it's a fun thing to wear your Pompero Furbo t-shirt, a little piece of history. Say this is the guy who inspired Randy Savage. And then you're doing a a good deed there that any of the proceeds go to Cauliflower Alley Club, which helps uh, wrestlers in need. Fantastic. Wow. So, hey, so thank you so much for being on the show. And um, please come again in the near future. You know, we're always recording something. We'd love to have you back. And if you have some new stories, we'd love to share them with the, <laughs> the fans. Yeah, thank you. I would love to come back anytime. And I really appreciate you, Diego. And I appreciate you also. I can't say Devore without saying Lord Devore. So, Friar Diego and Lord Devore. Um, thank you <laughs> so much. Thank you so much for everything you do just to connect to your fans and. You know, keep all of us. I'm as much of, um, you know, my dad was a fan of professional wrestling and so am I. You know, what a great, Jim Cornette always calls it the unique American art form. It's like what a great thing to be involved in. And um, I've just, I've been so touched by people like yourselves, by people in the, within the business, by family members, by friends who remember my dad and offer their good wishes and condolences when he passed and just keep those stories and history alive. So Thank you for all the good work you're doing. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for sharing all the wonderful stories. So, Mr. DeVore, it comes to the time to where we got to do this and uh, you got to flex your platinum pipes and take it home. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of Diego and DeVore Show. Now, we'd like to thank our special guest, Mary Freeze, the daughter of the legendary. So, tonight was brought to you ad-free, but we want to throw a little shout-out there to Amazon. We're not going to do any codes or anything like that. Just want to thank Amazon for being a sponsor of today's show. So, until next time, 